Hello, I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle the Buddhist Review, and this is Tricycle Talks. After a long pandemic, many of us are returning to work if we haven't already. We're seeing relatives again, friends, going out to dinner, all the fun things, but that brings with it a certain amount of social anxiety, especially after having lived in isolation for so long. As far as understanding how anxiety works, there's no one better to explain it than Josh Korda, a counselor and the guiding teacher of Dharma Punks New York City. So Josh is going to talk to us about a more skillful way to manage the stress that many of us are feeling and a way to live with greater ease. So I'm here with Josh Korda, guiding teacher of Dharma Punks New York City. Josh, it's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. So listen, Josh, you write a lot about anxiety. You teach a lot about anxiety and how we can cope with it. And now we're dealing with the anxiety of return. All of us are thinking about what's it going to be like when I go back to work. I don't know how to be with people anymore. And so you wrote a piece for us that we published on our website based on a Dharma talk you gave about the anxiety of return. Can you say something first about the anxiety and how that has built up? In many ways, we can trace it back to the evolution of our species. We spent the bulk of our species development in very, very small clans, which we would spend our entire life with. It was, one, deeply essential for our survival throughout the course of our species evolution that we have very strong affiliations and bonds. On our own, we would die. So built into the brain is highly sensitive social monitoring. There's dedicated circuits that monitor how people are thinking about us, that monitor other people's facial expressions. We're constantly concerned, in other words, what other people are thinking about us, how they relate to us, whether they like us or not. That's the price to pay for a social species that depends on bonds and affiliations to survive. And a secondary reason is that our species were all born prematurely and we require, you know, generally 18 years of caregiving. And so it's essential for us to maintain positive relationships with the people that we depend on. So not just for our caregiving, but through the entirety of our lifespan, we require positive interactions. What happens if you live in a a world where there's lots of other people is that you're constantly at first monitoring their faces, looking for any signs of disapproval. The reason why we can do this, why we can get up, go to work, travel in mass transit, or see so many more people than our ancestors would have in the course of their lifespan, is we're constantly getting confirming evidence that we're safe being around others. Because our natural setting is to be concerned, self-conscious, and anxious around people we don't know. During our evolution, if you stumbled across somebody that was outside of your clan, there was an excellent chance that they would kill you or try to steal your food or whatever you had gathered. And so the fusiform gyrus makes us hypervigilant of other people's facial expressions and makes us anxious. All human beings are naturally socially anxious. And what turns that off is that every day we go out and we have that anxiety disconfirmed. 
So what happens during a pandemic when you have a sustained period of social distancing is that we revert back to these anxious settings where we are constantly monitoring other people. We revert back to this sense of what are other people thinking about me? Am I safe? Etc. And so that's one of the reasons of many why it's so difficult to return after the pandemic. Right. So in other words, without confirming that our worst fears are unjustified, they simply grow. Exactly. Right. So why is Zoom contact not so effective in dispelling this paranoia? One, we're generally meeting with people that we know on Zoom to some degree. It's not like we're going outdoors where (laughs) we don't know the vast majority of people we're encountering. When you have a Zoom meeting, you probably know them and you probably have a felt sense in you that allows you to relax because, you know, you're here with your friends or with work colleagues or people that you've already developed positive bonds with. But where the concern rises is when we are around people that we have had no previous contact. The fastest region of the brain is the fusiform gyrus, which is the region that simply scans other people's faces. Do they like me? Do they not like me? Do I know this person? Do I not know this person? And if we have to do that again and again and again and again and again during our normal anxious settings, it's an unending stressor. If we have, as you were saying, that disconfirming evidence of daily walking outside, not being attacked (laughs) by others, not having somebody rush up and grab our groceries from us, over time, we develop this setting where we're back in what neuropsychologists called social engage, where your nervous system is in homeostasis, relaxed around other people. But it's very easy to go out of social engage and into hypervigilance. I find, though, on Zoom, people are much more difficult to read. I'm missing a lot of nuance there, and often there's a delay. So it doesn't really quite uh, dispel any doubts I have because I don't really feel I've got a handle on or I, or I don't as efficiently monitor their facial expressions, their gestures, their voice. Yeah, that, and that's true because the bulk of what we're monitoring unconsciously to feel comfortable is not just facial expressions, but it's body language, how close someone is sitting or how far. It's all these nonverbal cues that are being neurocepted. And so if we're on Zoom, we're already getting a diminishment of information that allows us to know. Uh, Like, for instance, if we were sitting together and I slightly turn away, you in person would already get the sense that the topic of conversation was somehow making me uncomfortable. And then you would unconsciously change the topic of conversation, and then you'd see my body reorient towards you, which would you'd read as a safety cue, and then your right amygdala in conjunction with the orbital frontal and all the other regions of the brain would say, oh, I'm okay with him now, and we can now stay on this topic for a while. Okay, well, let's just get back to social anxiety and the fear of return to what a normal life was. Uh, I don't know how normal it will be or what normal is, frankly, but we all understand that we'll be going back to something that is familiar or was familiar and dealing with that anxiety. And you've identified three tools for managing anxiety. And I'd like you to walk us through those. You talk about incremental exposure, disclosure, and attention. So why don't we begin with incremental exposure, a way of returning slowly? 
Yeah, well, in all exposure therapy, when someone has a trigger, like, for instance, uh, someone who's got social anxiety, especially heightened by having to speak in public, you wouldn't start them by dumping them in front of a, a large group of 400 people that they don't know and ask them to give an extemporaneous talk. What you do would be, you'd say, okay, start with practicing speaking in front of a small group of very close friends. And then you'd over time say, okay, let's then spread this to volunteering to talk up in meetings of people that you work with. So you know them pretty well. So you'd encourage the person to raise their hand. If the anxiety was really acute, the therapist would go with the client into triggering situations and purposely set it as very slow paced agenda to help them overcome an anxiety trigger. I just wanted to ask, you know, not all of us have control over how quickly we're going to reacclimate. For instance, at Tricycle, we're going to start in September working three days a week, and some people may move a little bit more slowly that first week or second week. But a lot of people are simply told, time to return to work, and they're just sort of dropped in. I mean, I'm the type who would just jump in the pool. I just say, okay, pull off the Band-Aid or whatever it is. That's one way of dealing with it. But for some people, that's not really a way of coping responsibly. But uh, what about people who are not in control of their circumstances? I would say that while they're at Tricycle, that would be an unlikely scenario for feelings of overwhelm, hypervigilance, even a degree of anxiety uptick, because they've already seen you and their colleagues. So they have a history that will disconfirm. But if somebody hasn't been going into Manhattan or New York City for a year, and then they suddenly are asked to go into New York, it's more likely the route to and from an office, or it might be during the lunch break where they go outside, that they would start to go back into a excessive monitoring of their environment, a guarded state where they're now back in uh, the sympathetic nervous system, they're uncomfortable, they don't feel relaxed, and they would start to breathe faster and so forth. So I don't think it's going to happen when people go into the office with people they're familiar with, but it's with the commute to and from and just being in the city uh, if they haven't been around other people that you would see a greater degree of discomfort. If you're going back into a city or a crowded environment, one thing we can do to reduce anxiety is to reorient to safety cues in whatever environment we're in. If we're taking a crowded subway to go to work, What we would do is not look at other people's faces, but look above people's heads at the advertisements on the subway walls, or we'd look below, or we'd even close our eyes and just visualize safe places, you know, for some people, a beach or a lake or a park, to reducing that tendency to stare at other people's faces actually will help our neuroception of the environment. And so another thing we can do, of course, is the very basic Buddhist tools of regulating how we breathe. So, for example, long exhalations engage the parasympathetic nervous system 
activate the vagal nerve, so they reduce anxiety. So if somebody remembers to breathe in, and then long exhalations where they're not pushing out the breath, they're meanwhile, they're looking above uh, other people's faces or looking at open spaces in their environment, or they might even use on top of that a very simple phrase, you know, may all beings be happy, peaceful, and free, or I love you, keep going. All of that drives out anxious thoughts and down-regulates our anxiety. Josh, I just wanted to ask one quick question. You keep using the word neurocepting, and just for our listeners who may not be familiar with that term, could you just say briefly what you're referring to? So neuroception is the unconscious scanning and processing of our environment to determine whether we're safe or not safe. So, for example, our species has two forms of attention. One is conscious, where we're looking at objects that are of interest to us. But another form of attention is this very broad, unconscious scanning of the world around us and other people for nonverbal cues and signs, basically asking the question, am I safe or am I not safe right now? And that's always going on, but it's always going on unconsciously in the background. So the term many use is neurocept, which means unconsciously scanning other people's faces, body language, the world around us to just simply see, am I okay? In other words, that would explain why I can walk into a room of 50 people, 49 of whom love me, but I focus on the one I know doesn't like me. So is that something like what you're talking about? Oh, so what will happen in that situation is you walk into a crowded room, like a party or a gathering, your left conscious brain is just maybe talking with people you know, but your unconscious mind is scanning for threats. If it determines that someone is looking at you angrily, then your right brain now will pin to that person and then your right singular your right part of attention will override looking at the person who's friendly and it will now reorient you to the threat because it thinks it's important for you to know about it and that's why meditation can be so difficult at first because we're sitting with our eyes closed our natural setting would be to monitor the external world for threats because we're doing something that's generally in our past not that easy. So we have to learn to engage our left brain and say, no, it's fine. I'm just going to pay attention to my breath. So we're not on the savannah. So what can we pull out of our Buddhist toolkit to get us into a place where we can sit and meditate? If we practice meditation or just sitting uh, quietly and bringing our attention to our internal experience, if you do that on a daily basis over time, the, your brain learns I don't need to constantly neurocept my environment and bring my attention to every creak or even any sign in my body that my body doesn't feel safe. You'll mm-hmm. be able to just focus on a phrase or a breath sensation. Okay, so we can return for a moment then to these three tools that you outlined. We talked about incremental exposure, but you also emphasize disclosure, one of the most important tools of getting through fear, the social anxiety that we feel. Why don't you say something about disclosure? The idea is that if I'm anxious in a social setting and I don't disclose that fact, what's going to happen? Well, three things are going to happen. I'm going to... One, start monitoring my body 
for the state of anxiety that my heart's now beating faster. So I'm monitoring myself for what cues are happening that's indicating to others that I'm anxious. Two, I'm going to start scanning other people's faces to see if they notice that I'm anxious. And then three, I still have to act as if I'm completely confident and comfortable and keep the topic on a subject that is germane to the interaction. So now my working memory is completely overloaded with different tasks. So like in that situation where I'm speaking in public, I'm scanning other people's faces to see if they notice I'm anxious. I'm scanning my own body because I feel uncomfortable. And I'm also trying to keep the topic on the talk I'm giving. So it's unsustainable. But what happens if I simply disclose to people at the beginning of the talk, oh, I'm feeling anxious right now. It's not that normal for me to speak in public or, you know, for some reason this gathering is making me anxious. Well, what I've just done is I've told everyone so I no longer have to dedicate all that awareness to how my body is feeling and monitoring their face because now the thing I was scanning them for and scanning my body for all the time has been disclosed. So I've given mm -hmm. myself permission to just relax and be anxious. Studies uh, mentioned in the work of Bruce Hood, who wrote The Self-Illusion and other books, who's a clinical psychologist, talk about how efficient it is to simply say, I'm anxious in these tests where they monitor your skin sensitivity and heart rate Almost immediately after you say, I'm anxious, everything drops. It's counterintuitive, though, because so many of us are so reluctant to admit or disclose anything. Certainly, one doesn't want to say one is anxious because it might be perceived as weakness. So why do you think disclosure is so difficult and, and how can we get better at it? Uh, I think because we all believe that we should be confident. It's modeled for us. It's socially validated and enshrined that people who are confident and relaxed and appear to be in good command of everything they say and do are the people that we are constantly seeing on TV. They're constantly being thrust upon us in almost every setting as the ideal. So we think, oh, if I'm falling short of that confident, relaxed, non-anxious demeanor, there's something wrong with me and people will disregard what I say, then it becomes harder and harder to simply reveal our anxiety, even though the benefits of revealing our anxiety are enormous because most people have been anxious in social settings at certain points of their life. You wrote a piece for us on precisely this, on disclosure, that we published in Tricycle. And so you talk about other kinds of disclosure that protect you against people's projections, say. You're countering a tendency to idealize someone, I think. Well, yeah, I wrote a piece for Tricycle on why I come clean to my students about my anxiety and so forth, because I felt that one of the harms were being perpetuated by a lot of Buddhist teachers was this kind of demeanor that they project where you come in and they're smiling and they have this beatific look on their face as if they've never had an anxious or depressed moment in their entire life. And they feel it's a kind of responsibility to sell the Dharma and sell themselves as a teacher by presenting this persona 
of the unperturbed, the relaxed. One of the reasons I, f- I find it atrocious is because I know a lot of Buddhist teachers, and trust me, they can come across in their talks as if they've never known a distressing moment in their life. But then you, you go out and you hang out with them when they're not in public, and they still have their fair share of anxiety and worries and concerns, and they dump it on you know other teachers. But then when they go in front of a crowd, they're adverse I've had anxiety since growing up uh, as a young boy in a very alcoholic environment with a very violent dad. And so I had insomnia for much of my childhood. And I started drinking at a young age to manage my anxiety. And, you know, 26 years ago, got sober. And uh, because there was a Buddhist practice in my family as well as alcoholism, I used my Buddhist practice, which was then kind of flagging. But when I got sober 26 years ago, I started practicing heavily. And that's what basically thrust me over time into the role of teaching and being a pastor and all that. But I don't ever want to present myself as someone who's, you know, doesn't know the basic distressing negative emotional states because that's very much part of the natural human condition and i think we do a disservice if we pretend otherwise what if i'm a reserved or private person and really don't want to disclose that much so i would argue and this might be contrary to what you expect but i argue that in terms of healing and overcoming early traumas or attachment wounds that It's better to push ourselves to disclose our internal experience, Mm -hmm. even if our natural setting is towards being private, because they tend to inhibit the disclosure of personal information and what they're feeling due to early attachment wounds. And so even if it's uncomfortable, disconfirming that unconscious belief that everybody's going to act the same way that people did in my childhood by pushing us to actually do the opposite is very, very healthy for us. So even though it feels unnatural, I'd say find people that you have the greatest expectation to being accepting and non-judgmental and push yourself to do it. But I wonder, do we ever disclose too much? Sure. For example, in a therapeutic encounter or my role as a pastor, if I sit around talking about, oh, I'm feeling tired today or I didn't get enough sleep or I'm, you know. Take up all the airtime. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. only take up all the airtime, but it makes it difficult for the individual because they become unconsciously concerned about me or it makes it more difficult for them to project different issues that they need to resolve in counseling and so forth. I've done hospice work. You don't go in there and talk to somebody who's in hospice about the fact that you've been worried lately. (laughs) That's not the point of that encounter. And of course, in some professional settings, while it's good to say I'm anxious or I'm feeling not up to my best, then beyond that, it might not be of benefit. It just alerts people that you might not be as active as you normally would be. And now we'll take a quick break to listen to a message from our sponsor, St. John's College. St. John's College is the nation's great books college. 
where students of all ages can learn from classic works by Plato, Austin, Baldwin, Morrison, Mozart, and more this summer. Deep reading and deep conversation reign during week-long summer programs with in-person and online options. Grounded in timeless ideas and driven by lively conversation, the program explores timeless works of fiction or nonfiction, poetry, science, the arts, and philosophy. For intellectually curious high school students, the St. John's Summer Academy is a hands-on pre-college program that helps students hone their reading, critical thinking, and discussion skills with engaging workshops and off-campus excursions in Santa Fe and Annapolis. Learn more about online and in-person summer programs at sjc.edu slash summer2021. Okay, so back to Josh Gorda. You bring together a lot. I mean, you're a therapist. You bring together 12-step work. And then, of course, you're a Buddhist teacher. How, how do all these three things work together for you, uh, particularly with regard to Buddhism? Because it must suffuse all of your other activities. It goes back to the way it was all presented to me. When I was 12, and this is the early 70s, my dad, who had been an alcoholic and a pretty violent guy, suddenly transformed. He got sober. And as part of his sobriety, he basically converted wholeheartedly to Buddhist practice. And so suddenly, dysregulation in the household was replaced with my father sitting there meditating. And on the bookshelves, there were suddenly all these books like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, The Three Pillars of Zen, and all these classics. My dad bought the books, but never actually bothered to read them because he was not a reader, but he sort of thought that if he owned the books, somehow the wisdom in them would suffuse into his mind naturally. But I was a big reader. And at the same time, my mom started filling up her bookshelves with books on psychology, Freud, Rank, Jung, Melanie Klein, and so forth. Because she was getting, you know, just as my dad got sober, she was getting into therapy and she became more and more interested in how uh, psychology and therapy helped people. At the exact same moment that I became just naturally interested in Buddhism, I became naturally interested in psychology. So I always viewed Buddhist practice not as this religious or even this kind of rarefied endeavor where you're trying to avoid your psychological triggers. But I always viewed it as Buddhism was a kind of self-therapy, a kind of way mm -hmm. that you would turn towards the unmetabolized, unrecognized emotional content that had been repressed, and you could reconnect and process it in your practice. Buddhism was never an escapism into like a kind of liberation where oh, I'm just going to use meditation as a spiritual bypass. It was the exact opposite. It was like, okay, here's where you go down into the dark, dank parts of the basement of your unconscious, and you start shining a flashlight and seeing what's there. So we talked about incremental exposure. We talked about disclosure. And these were tools for addressing anxiety, and in particular here, the anxiety of returning after the pandemic you have a third tool, and it's attention, shifting the spotlight of our attention to something we perceive as safe, not stressful. You said a little bit about that. Yeah. Why don't we come back to it? Unconsciously, 
we're always scanning the environment for threats. The brain is negativity bias. It's an evolutionary holdover to the fact that the bulk of our evolution, we were not safe. We were not in environments or settings that where threats and predators were removed. Very often throughout the bulk of our history, suddenly the food supply might disappear or members of other clans might suddenly appear attacking us or we might be onset of diseases or floods or whatever. So the human brain's natural setting is to be constantly looking for bad news. The sad part is, is that the more we look for bad news, the less safe we feel. The key is to reorient towards safety cues in our environment, which means to purposely use your left brain, your conscious mind, and remind ourselves again and again, okay, I'm walking down a crowded street. I'm not going to look at each face approaching me. I'm just going to look maybe down at the sidewalk or above. I'm going to look at trees. I'm going to look at open spaces. And then I'm going to add maybe a phrase in my mind that I'm going to repeat over and over again, because that's going to pull my attention away from midline thinking, which is what's going to happen to me? Do other people like me? Uh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm getting anxious. I got to get out of here, whatever. Giving ourselves a very simple, neutral phrase to repeat also brings our attention away from stressful thoughts and pins it on thoughts that are not triggering. You know, you mentioned the media, you mentioned watching the news. I mean, we do have a media that understands this very well, and you worked in marketing once yourself. But how are you looking at that and what might we do to combat that aside from turning off the television? It's for better or worse that media has found out that if it bleeds, it leads, which means front load on the cover of a paper or on a news broadcast or on a news site. You highlight the bad news because that's how you'll pin people's attention. The brain has negativity bias. It doesn't have positivity bias. So good news, studies show, is much more difficult to keep our attention. If the New York Times just led with reasons to feel safe during the pandemic, people would spend far less time and click far less on the stories and then see less advertisements. Many people point out that we're probably living in the safest time to be a human being. Even during a pandemic, we've been living in a very safe time, but we don't orient towards safety cues. We orient naturally to threats. And so if we want to be less on guard all the time, at least especially in settings where we have the reasonable expectation of not being attacked or killed, it's part of our practice to balance away from negativity bias, savor good news, savor positive experiences. It doesn't mean that you'll be caught off guard if suddenly a big threat occurs. I guarantee you, you won't be caught off guard because the moment a real threat appears, all of our brain setting is to orient towards it. The problem with anxiety is that we act as if a threat is larger than it is or even sometimes when people have anxiety disorders, they constantly monitor for threats when there absolutely isn't any threat present. And so it creates the same state of defense, rapidly spiraling thoughts, fear states, 
it's a mobilization state in the body. So in those situations where we are safe, it's our job to not bombard us with negativity or threat cues. You often cite the suttas. Is there a sutta connection somewhere that can help us to break through the negativity bias? Yeah, there's a bunch of suttas where the Buddha talks about how important it is to uh, regulate. I think the one that's a sutta that's not really mentioned that often is the sabasava. That's the second middling discourse. And it's this whole list of ways to downregulate our anxiety and our nervous system. The Buddha says, first, stop thinking about yourself. <laughs> That's a huge one, because when we think about ourselves, that has exonic connections with your fight, flight, freeze setting in your brain. But when we use lateral thinking, where we're thinking about essentially any issue outside of ourselves, or we're focusing on what we're doing, we're not going to naturally stress ourselves out. We're, we're not in what's called default mode processing anymore when we stop thinking about ourselves. You know, classic triggering thoughts are what other people think about me, what's going to happen to me in the future, am I good enough, am I living up to my potential? Basically, it's this long list of don't think about yourself. All of these self-oriented thoughts, the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, are triggering, don't do that. And I was just reading a book by Ethan Cross, a famous clinical psychologist called Chatter, and he talks a lot about, again, if you want to stress yourself out, think about yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, the antidote to that, I've found, is to be of service to others. It certainly gets you out of yourself. That's so fundamental, I think. Yeah, or you can simply just do something that focuses your attention externally. That's why people love task-positive behaviors like pottery, gardening, drawing, playing an instrument. Basket weaving. Basket weaving. <laughs> we really love the activities that get us out of our self, out of yeah. our self-oriented thinking. In another piece you wrote for us, you wrote about panic attacks and the symptoms of stress and anxiety. And I think what you're talking about now in many ways are things to do when you're feeling those symptoms. Is that right? Mm -hmm. In that sutta, the Buddha talks about paying attention to what you're focusing your attention on, what to tolerate versus what not to tolerate. He says, we have to learn to tolerate the mosquito bites of existence, but we have to learn to avoid the huge pits that we might fall into in the road, or we might need to avoid the uh, places where the rhinoceros or the wild boars charge around. So he's talking about balancing acceptance with also learning to navigate around unnecessary situations that cause us a great amount of distress. He also talks about focusing attention on areas in an environment that are not triggering at all. Mm -hmm. Really, the whole point of the sutta, which is about how to not become anxious <laughs> or distressed, right. is basically don't think about yourself. Learn to tolerate inevitable difficult situations by relaxing, breathing, just paying attention to how you feel internally. Avoid unnecessarily triggering situations for you that you don't have to do. You know, we talk a lot about safety. And yet if we know one thing from our own experience and certainly from the Buddhist teachings, everything is unstable. At what mm -hmm. point do we simply accept that and relax? We have absolutely no guarantees. And that's a big part of Marana Sati practice, which is we embrace and accept the fact that we are uh, always hurtling towards our own death and that we have no knowledge of when it will happen. 
that's the first noble truth. And when we embrace that, then so much of the craving and the addiction falls away because so much of addiction and craving is trying to get an artificial control or a sense of safety where there is none. But these practices we've been talking about today are about what happens when we become overly monitoring our environments for threats simply by relaxing our hypervigilance and reorienting towards safety cues in our environment does not mean we'll be unprotected, nor does it mean we're avoiding the fundamental first noble truth of our life, which is that we are impermanent, we are mortal beings, we have no guarantees of our duration. It's not an escape to reorient. It simply means there are certain situations in life where we are needlessly anxious, needlessly hypervigilant. And so these are practices to rebalance us towards a setting that is not constantly in mobilization, survival state. Okay, well, I have an apt suggestion. Why don't you lead us in a two-minute meditation to give us a sense of how you ground yourself when you're feeling anxious? One would simply be to just close our eyes and bring awareness to the most comfortable area or body associated with the breath and just uh, keep our awareness on that area. And each time we get pulled away by thoughts or by external uh, stimuli, just gently bring the attention back to that area. For me, very often, it's the heart center. I might put a hand on my heart center, you know, and just relax it. Another practice I would do, though, I'll just step people through that because it's less common, is we could sit with our eyes open, not close our eyes, and we would just rest our eyes on some part of our environment that is very relaxing. So I'm now shifting my attention to a plant, and I'm just going to relax my gaze and i'm going to especially relax the micro muscles and i'm just going to keep my attention focused on this plant and every time something wants to pull my gaze away i'm just gonna really take a nice full breath in and an out breath and i'm gonna make sure my belly it's very soft. I'm just going to breathe in to my belly and then release the breath. So when I breathe into the belly, it expands and feels very softened. So every time I want to pull my attention away from the safety cue in my environment, I'm just going to doubly relax my internal experience. And then might sound strange, but I'm going to even send this plant meta, maybe peaceful, Maybe at ease, maybe free of stress and suffering. So I'm changing my entire orientation towards this plan to one of kindness. And I'm just going to keep breathing and just stay attentive to this external safety cue. And I'm not going to allow my gaze to shift away. So that's an example of how we might in an environment where you don't want to meditate like you're in a 
a meeting in an office and you don't want to sit and close your eyes and breathe or you're in a, an interpersonal setting or at a party, what you would do is you practice in your normal daily life. You don't wait until you're in the stressful environment, but you practice orienting towards safety cues and relaxing and pinning your attention to something in your environment that is not shifting, that's not volatile, that's very constant, but also is not another human being's face. Well, for me, it was my sleeping dog. They're very relaxing. Yeah, my cats are the <laughs> classic for that. Well, Josh Corda, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. It's always enjoyable to connect with you whenever I've stumbled across you in different Buddhist gatherings. And I hope your listenership will put up with my ramblings that interweave psychology, neuroscience, classic Buddhism and all that. Well, I think they will. And I really appreciate it. So you've been listening to Josh Corda here on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. And if you have anything to say, write us at feedback at tricycle.org. I'd love to hear what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be, Sarah Fleming and Julia Hirsch. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.